Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So it's been quite a few years ago now. It was back in the period of time when I was trying to accumulate counseling, supervised counseling hours so that I could sit for my state licensing exam as a marriage and family therapist. It was in another setting, and a client came to see me that I've not forgotten. Don't think often of it, but on occasion I'll remember. Something will bring it back to mind. This particular client was a woman who was in deep distress, deep distress about her marriage. And I could understand that listening to her story. There was somebody else involved. She was involved with another gentleman. And that's always going to create a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance and guilt and anxiety and worry and a whole raft of other problems. But the issue was that her husband knew about it. He knew about it and had very little reaction to it. And that was causing her as much pain as anything else. She said to me, I think it was the fact that he doesn't care that kind of set me down this road to begin with. But when he found out and still didn't care, that was utterly devastating. I was very thankful that I was doing supervised counseling because I turned to my supervisor and basically said, what in the world? I wasn't expecting this. I was expecting there would be situations like this, and then there would be jealous spouses saying, we'll settle this with fist or watch your back, I'm coming after you. But to have the husband say, and he actually said this on occasion, I don't know how to deal with you. Why don't you go talk to him? She was in deep pain. Before I left that particular setting and before we ended our counseling sessions together, he had actually agreed to come with her, and things seemed to be moving in a possibly good direction. I left and don't know what happened, but have often wondered over the years. But I'll tell you when I think of that what I remember. What I remember most is a woman slouched over in a counseling chair, on the couch, as they say, slouched over, body racked with sobs, tear-streaked face, saying, I just want him to love me. I just want him to love me. You realize that's the cry of many hearts. Every one of us wants to be loved. By the grace of God, many of us are in context, in settings, in families where we experience that kind of love. But that is not true for everyone. And whether it's true for you or not, there is a part of you, a part of me, that says, I just want to be loved. I need to be loved. It's the cry of the heart of the young man, the student here. Girlfriend breaks up with him. 
and it decimates, it devastates the dreams that he had. Now he's having a very hard time even concentrating, focusing on his studies. I just want her to love me. It's the cry of the young woman's heart. She's grown up in a family with a cold mother and a distant father. She's grown up wondering, why did they even have kids? They don't do anything with me. I just want them to love me. It was apparently part of the cry of the heart of Philip Seymour Hoffman, the actor, who back in February of 2014 died tragically. It was actually a friend who found him, found him in Hoffman's own apartment, found him with a needle injected into his vein and having passed away. Scattered around the apartment was a cocktail of all kinds of drugs. Ultimately, they would decide it was an accidental overdose from heroin. So they wondered what would have caused him to go to that extreme to that point. Some think it was revealed about a year before that in an interview he had. He was interviewed about a role which he was playing at the time. He was playing the role of the salesman in Death of a Salesman. He said it had a rather profound impact on him personally. I want you to listen to his words as in that interview about a year before his death, he talked about acting out the place of Willie Loman and what that meant. He said, really, the play is about the idea that you have a vision of what you're supposed to be or going to be or where your kids are going to be, and that doesn't work out. So in other words, life has taken a detour. He went on to say, it really started to seep into me why we're here. What are we doing? Family, work, friends, hopes, dreams, careers. What is happiness? What is success? What does it mean? Is it important? How do you get it? And then he ended up by saying, ultimately, what gets you up in the morning is to be loved. We all have a yearning to be loved. And I remember her weeping. I just want him to love me. You may have come to worship this morning with that sense in your heart and soul. Maybe not in the greater existential sense, but maybe in a more specific sense. This week has been a rough week. You and your, your, your spouse, your wife, your husband have had a fight like you haven't had in years. And you still feel battered and bruised emotionally by that. You did something. You cheated on a test. You shaded the numbers somewhere. You blurred some boundaries with a person. And today you walk in thinking, I just feel overwhelmed and battered around, I just wish I could have the confidence that I'm loved. Well, if you have that sense, if you have that awareness of that yearning to be loved, then you need to follow today's episode in the unfolding life of Jacob. It's found in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29 will give us the story, give us the tale. But I have to remind you before we read it, where we join the story. Because as we left them last week, we left the sound of a Jewish wedding, a Jewish festival, the excitement, the sounds, the music, the shuffling of the dancing feet. The wedding feast was just winding down, and we ended. Actually, it wasn't a wedding. It was two weddings. Two weddings where Jacob, first of all, married Rachel until he realized, behold, it was Leah, and then he, a week later, did marry Rachel. 
And then like every good novel writer, right at the end of that experience, the the narrator in Genesis pins one phrase that draws us into the continuing story. He writes these words, and Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And we realize, uh uh-oh, this is going to be a problem. So what's going to happen next? That's where we join this week. I want to start out by reading just one verse, Genesis 29, 31, because this one verse sets the stage for everything that will happen in this episode. Genesis 29, 31 says this, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. That's the setting. Everything that happens after this will flow out of that one statement. That is the one statement that sets the context. Don't forget that statement. We're going to read the whole episode, but before we do, let me point you to three things to notice or to remember as we read. First one is this. Remember that in the biblical account, naming a child, naming children, is not a matter like it is in the modern world, merely of preference. It's not a matter of mom and dad getting together and saying, so um, what name do you like? Uh, Well, I like, I I don't know, I like kind of like biblical names. Biblical names. I like biblical names. So what biblical name? Well, I've been thinking, maybe we should name our child Nathaniel Daniel. We're not naming our child Nathaniel Daniel. I'm sorry. We're not doing that. We can do biblical. I'm not doing that. Okay, how about this one? Let's use the longest name in the Bible, Isaiah's first son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. We're not naming our child Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Take all afternoon to call him to dinner. We're not doing that. Get another name. And so they end up at the computer, favorite names of 2019. It's a matter of preference. What do you like? What do I like? Can we get our heads together on it? Not so in Scripture. In Scripture, the naming of a child has to do with a variety of different realities. It may have to do with character. It may have to do with desired character, with task or purpose in life. It may be a predictor of the future. It may have to do with something that is happening at the time of the child's birth. But whatever it has to do with, it is not just a matter of preference. It's making a deeper statement. That's the first thing to remember. Second thing to take note of is that we will come to a place in the passage where we'll be talking about mandrake plants. Mandrake plants. Now, mandrake plants, we we don't talk, we don't know about mandrake plants. Those are Mediterranean plants. But they're a curious plant, apparently have a rather refreshing aroma. The, the, The buds do, the flowers do. But it's the roots that are of interest because the roots of the mandrake plant were understood to be an aphrodisiac and even more than that were understood to promote fertility. The roots had the appearance of the human form. I want to show you on the screen a picture of some mandrake roots. So here are the mandrake roots and they have that sense about them. So these will come up in the story. So remember mandrake plants. 
And then finally, I want you to remember this. I just want to refresh you on this. Remember that everything in the account will have to do with the outgrowth of that first phrase. So let's go to it now. Genesis 29, starting with verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. And Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Billa, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant, Billa, as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servants, Billa, Billa, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! And she named him Gad. Leah's servant bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, How happy I am! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband, so she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. <laughs> Poor Jacob. What in the world? It's like he's being overwhelmed. It's like, here, 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 here. Just produce. Just, we've got to have children. Now, what's happening clearly, 
the foundation and the outgrowth is a competition to see who will be able to say, God has blessed me, my husband loves me, everything is fruitful in my life. And so from one to the next, Jacob goes. In fact, the interesting thing is, in this particular part of his story, he's very passive. He says very little, if anything. It's the women in his life who are talking and who are having babies. It's an interesting time. But I want you to notice, again, the names that the moms give to their little ones. I'm going to read you just briefly name and meaning of name. Now, I have to tell you, Hebrew scholars say there are nuances in the Hebrew that are almost impossible to capture in the English, and that's why if you lay two different versions side by side, you'll see some differences in how they render the meanings of the names because sometimes it has to do with how it sounds and sometimes it has to do with what it means. But having said that, just take note. So we start with Leah. Leah has Reuben. God has seen my misery and given me a son. Next, Simeon. God has heard me. He knows I am not loved. Then Levi. Jacob, please attach yourself to me in love. Judah. Praise God. You have loved me, heard me, even though my husband doesn't and hasn't. And then Leah stops having children. Now Rachel is really feeling the heat. So she grabs Billa, her maidservant, and she says, Here, take her, have kids through her, and those kids are going to be mine. So Dan is born. God has listened to me. I am finally vindicated. So take that, Leah. Next is Naphtali. I have fought well, and I have won. You think there's some competition going on in this family, in these circles? Well, Billa's fertility had lessened Rachel's tension, but it also served to heighten the rivalry between the two sisters because now Leah realizes, I'm not having them anymore. Somebody's got to have them. She grabs her maidservant, Zilpah. Okay, here, you step in for me. Gad is born. Good fortune. I'm finally fortunate I'm having more sons. To prolong the good future, next, Asher is born. I am finally happy. Along the way, she has Dinah, the child. And then we're back to Leah having children, Issachar. God has rewarded me. Finally, her last son is born, Zebulun. Surely my husband will have to honor me now. And then late in the game, late in the experience, Rachel finally has a child whom she names Joseph. Joseph, God has taken away my disgrace And now that he has, may God add more children to me. If you read between the lines, a great deal of what is happening here is these two sisters saying, I just want him to love me. I just want to be loved. And that deep yearning and craving for love plays itself out in the elbowing and shoving and pushing and fighting and surrogate parenting that we've just read in the text. Just because I want to be loved. We all yearn to be loved. 
to know that we are on somebody's mind, in somebody's heart, that we matter more than anything else to someone else. Leah did not have that experience. And the Lord saw it. Now, there are a number of different directions we could go in talking about this text, different applications that we might make. For example, we could talk about the extreme damage that is created when we have to earn love. Talk to a child who has grown up in a home of which that child says, I never felt like I was fully, completely loved unless I was behaving correctly, making the right choices. If I blew it, I had to hide it because my parents would have pushed me away emotionally. Talk to them about the kind of damage that has created in their lives. You just can't earn love, no matter how many children you produce, not the kind of love that we crave in our souls. So we could talk about that. Or we could talk about favoritism and competition, in this case, for their husband's attention. In many cases in the modern world, for a parent's attention. Just talk to a child who has grown up in the shadow of an older sibling. An older sibling who, who did so much better in everything at school, in sports, in music, and then you step in. Oh, are you so-and-so's little brother, little sister? Oh, man, they were amazing. It was such a great experience. They did wonderful things in the orchestra. They were the best student in the class. Just great. It must be wonderful to be their little sibling. Really? Is that what you think? Hmm. Talk to someone who has had that experience, feeling like they're having to compete to be loved. Great damage. We could talk about that. We could even talk about the role of culture in the unfolding people of God. Culture is clearly evident in this text. Polygamy. How in the world does God use that to bring about a family that will bless all the peoples of the world? We could spend a lot of time on that question. Suffice it today to say that for some reason that God will have to explain, God has been willing to limit himself to the times and the days and the cultures in which each of us live, knowing that there are blind spots, knowing that there are damaging realities, and yet still continuing to work with us as he moves us in the direction he wants us to grow. By the time we get to the New Testament, this would not happen. There's been a trajectory of growth and change, and yet all the way back here in the first book of Scripture, God uses people based on where they are and how they understand life. In fact, listen to one quote, Old Testament scholar named John Hartley, who talks about this, this very scene, in fact. He says this, while polygamy was not forbidden in ancient Israel, it was never romanticized, not even in the family of the patriarch who gave the nation its name. Listen especially to this. In Scripture, most polygamous families experience deep, bitter conflicts. No wonder God is going to grow his people in a different direction. But before we become too judgmental of other people and other cultures, 
just remember, something about God says, I'll take you where you are, I'll work within that context, and grow you in the direction I want you to go. We could spend much time on that. But that's not what grabs me most about this passage. What grabs me most about this passage is that you have a favored sister with whom the husband is deeply in love. And then you have the other sister who is not loved, who slouches on the couch, hunched over, tears streaking her face, and crying out, I just want him to love me. We can relate to Leah. Every one of us, if we're human, have had that experience. I just want to be loved. And then we read that opening phrase, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, and I want to know what comes next. May I paraphrase it? Here's what comes next in the RRV, the Randy Roberts version. Here's what comes next. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he gave her evidence of his love for her in a way she could understand. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he gave her evidence of his love for her in a way that she could understand. Maybe we could say that much more briefly by saying it this way. God sees... And God loves. God sees you, and God loves you. You see, one of the challenges of feeling that we are truly and deeply loved is the challenge that every one of us has a private persona, and some go beyond that and have personal secrets. Secrets that they don't share, secrets from a spouse, from a parent, from a child, from other friends, secrets that no one knows so that when someone says to them, I really love you, what they're thinking in their mind is, would they say that if they knew? If they saw, would they still love? Which underlines the simple reality, we can only experience love to the degree that we are known we can only experience love to the degree that we are known. If there are large parts of ourselves that are not known, we cannot fully experience love. There's always that question, what if they knew? What if, what if? But in Leah's case, the narrator tells us, God does know. God sees and God loves. And that's very good news to you and to me. He showed it to Leah by having many children. He's shown it to you and me for time and eternity in a way that we cannot ever forget. Come with me. Come with me to a cave. It's a cave somewhat outside of a little town. They say that it happened here. There's no way to absolutely prove that it happened here, but there are reasonably good reasons to believe it. We duck into the cave, and we're told this cave would have been a stable. 
a stable where animals were kept. And it would have been here in this stable that a baby was born. And that baby, true to biblical form, was given a name, a name with great meaning. And the name was Jesus because he will save you. He will see you, he will love you, and he will save you. This baby, had you been able to pick up the baby and hold the baby in your arms, had you been able to take what would appear to be your giant hand and open that baby's tiny fist and rub your finger on the palm of his hand, you would have been rubbing the place where he inscribed you for time and eternity into his body just so he could say, I see you and I love you. We have a deep yearning to be loved, every one of us. I think, for example, of the rocker, the crooner, Elton John, who was interviewed some time ago and not that long, actually, within the last two or three years, and was asked about such things. They were asking him about his father and what it was like when he was growing up and all of those different kinds of realities. And Elton John struggled as the interviewer was asking him. John was kind of trying to say, well, he talked about it first in the third person. Felt like he couldn't really say that close, I suspect. He was feeling like, well, it's so emotional. I'm not sure I can really share that. So then he went on to say this. He went on to say, when I was growing up, they, they, they didn't say, I love you. They didn't hold you. And then he got more personal. He said, my father, he was a rough man. In fact, he would say, the time when he touched me the most was when he was beating me. To which his mother then said, that's just how we did it then. It didn't really affect you. You know what Elton John said? He said, Mom, it affects me every single day. That's what it's like to feel I need to be loved, I want to be loved, and yet not be loved. Or what about the other rocker, Bruce Springsteen? Five decades making music taking painful experiences and, and moving them into performance, sad sentiments, moving them into song. Ringstein's dad, just a couple of years ago, did something uncharacteristic. He got in his car, and he drove 400 miles to see Bruce Springsteen. When he got there, over drinks and over lunch, they, they talked together. They reflected. It's in that context that his dad said this to him, Bruce, you've been very good to us. And then after a pause, and I wasn't good to you. And Springsteen says, that was it. That was all that was necessary. He recognized it, and that's what I needed. And then the interviewer asked him, did you ever hear the words, I love you, from your father? No, Springsteen said, a little pained. The best you could get was me saying, love you, pops, and then switching to his father's gruff, gruff voice, uh, me too. 
Even after he'd had a stroke, said Springsteen, he'd be crying, and I'd be saying it to him, and all he could do was just say, me too. You'd hear his voice breaking up, but he just couldn't get the words out. Some have lived that with a parent, with a spouse, with a significant other, yearning to be loved, feeling like Leah. I'm unloved. Does anybody see? Does anybody care? And the text says, God sees and God loves. So what would it be like, I wonder, to know that you are fully, completely, totally loved? What would that be? Well, I think there's a couple that knows. Michael and Linda Joyce know. They've been married 39 years, 38 years last year when the incident happened. They've been married all those years, and yet something has happened to Michael. It has been something that has crept into his brain, something called Alzheimer's, that has begun to pluck away the memories that he has had, even the most precious among them, plucked away and gone. So much so that Michael does not remember that he's married to Linda. 38 years of marriage, doesn't realize they're marriage, married. And thus it was that one day, a year or so ago, Michael popped the question to Linda. He said to her, would you marry me? I want to read you the story of what unfolded next. First, in Linda's words, when your husband of 38 years who doesn't remember asks, will you marry me? You don't say, oh, we're already married. Linda Joyce spoke to the New Zealand reporter and said, so I said, of course I will, thinking he might not remember that he had asked me the next morning. But the next morning, Michael woke up and said, so when are we doing this? Here's the note Linda sent to her friends and community inviting them to their second wedding. She said, my adored hubby of 38 years suffers from Alzheimer's dysphagia. Two nights ago, out of the blue, with tear-filled eyes, he asked me to marry him. Michael had clearly forgotten we were already married, but I absolutely went along with him, and I said I would be delighted to be his wife. In spite of his confused mind, he obviously knows and feels that this is something he really wants to do. So to Michael, it will be our wedding ceremony. And to our friends and to me, it will be a truly precious, memorable occasion. Story says when their wedding morning arrived, Linda Joyce said she wasn't sure he would remember, but he woke up and told his betrothed, today's the day. The beaming couple, originally from Scotland, exchanged vows at a scenic lake in New Zealand near their home as friends looked on. Linda said, there's been a lot of sadness and a lot of frustration, but despite all the fogginess, today has been pure joy. I think that's what it's like to know you are truly loved. 
no matter what else is gone, the love remains. She said it was a day of pure joy. I wonder why she said that. I wasn't there. You weren't there. We can guess. Was it the fun, the food, the festivity, the family, the friends? Probably all of those. But I think it was one other thing. I think it was a day of pure joy because on that day, Linda knew, knew that she was loved. Unequivocally, unflinchingly, unyieldingly. Just the way God loved Leah. Just the way God loves you. And having said that, let this be a day of pure joy.